It's good to be with you this morning. As you know, we don't do anything fancy here at Maple Avenue. We get up and we explain the Bible. So if you're looking for a great show or a a great speech, you've come to the wrong place. But if you're looking to dig into God's Word and hear from it, you've come to the right place by God's grace. We've been working through the book of Colossians. And in the book of Colossians, we've, we've heard this theme of the sufficiency of Christ. We've been exploring that theme in great depth. We're about to get to the section, or we're just starting the section of Colossians, where he starts teaching how we're supposed to live as Christians. And in this section where it talks about how we're supposed to live as Christians, it's important that we see that the same theme, the sufficiency of Christ, affects these instructions as well. And so we're going to look at the first four verses of this section, which really lays out how the sufficiency of Christ affects how we live our day-to-day life. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Colossians chapter 3. If you don't, we have Bibles in the rack in front of you, and you can take them and open them to page 834, page 834, and we'll just be reading Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. Because we believe it is God's voice that's heard when we hear the scriptures read, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. If you die, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's be seated and pray. God, we want to be a people who hear your word, understand your word, and live in light of your word. Because we love you. Because we know you're good. But we can't do that without your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be active this morning amongst us. That your word might have its effect. In Christ's name, amen. Well, there's a soldier who is nearing the end of his tour of duty... And some of his friends were going down on an off night to the local establishment to enjoy the local diversions, and they invited him to come. A friend of this soldier came up to him and said words to this effect. If the vows you made to your wife mean anything to you, set your mind on your marriage. That's where true pleasure and joy is found. It may be hidden now, but it will soon be revealed. So, if the friend said those things to his soldier, what was it he was trying to get after in those words? He was trying to help his friend see, he was trying to help the soldier see, look, there, there is a more profound and important reality. The reality of your marriage. And that reality is much more dominant and important than whatever you're thinking about for tonight. 
And what did he mean by the phrase, if he said something like that, set your mind on your marriage? Well, certainly what he means by that is the reality of the value made, the reality of the marriage and and all the goodness that, that awaits you there when you return home. Let those realities shape your values and your decision-making today. So with that as the backdrop, I want you to hear again the words of Colossians 3, 1 to 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I want to dig into this passage, and I want to begin at verse 1. Now, verse 1, there's a command given. Set your hearts on things above. What does it mean to set your hearts on things above? Well, the phrase set your hearts, I think we all get, right? It just means to seek after something so as to attain it. So uh, my six-year-old Charlie sets his heart, has set his heart on going to Canada's Wonderland. My three-year-old Eva has set her heart on doing whatever it is that her bigger siblings do. And my one-year-old Mercy has set her heart on knocking anything she can to the floor and destroying it. But what does it mean to set your heart on things above? We have two clues on what that on things above means. The first thing we see is it says set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that phrase is actually an allusion back to Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, there's a, it's, it's kind of a prophetic psalm, and it talks about how there is a coming Messiah, a coming promised one, who will be God himself, and yet he will come and establish God's good kingdom. And when he has established it, he will sit at the right hand of God the Father. This messianic psalm, then, is promising a time when all the good things of God's kingdom, his, his love, his justice, his peace, his mercy, his kindness, a kingdom characterized by those things will be established. And so to talk about things above and say where Christ is seated at the right hand of God is to talk about this place where God's good kingdom is. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The things above where God's will is being done, where God's kingdom is fully revealed. But there's a second clue we see, because right after that in verse 2, it says, set your minds on things above, and then it compares it not on earthly things. So whatever it is, it's not on earthly things. And then if you go down just a little bit further to verse 5, it says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. It's the same word. It's even closer in Greek than it is in English. So then it tells us what the things of earth are. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And it talks about um, 
in verse 8, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. In verse 9, lying. All these things are actions based on the values of this fallen, rebellious against God world. So earthly things refers to the values and priorities and the, the actions characteristic of those values and priorities that belong to this fallen against God world, this kingdom of man. So the things that are above are the opposite of that. So when it's saying set your mind there, it's not talking about, hey, uh, think about pearly gates and streets of gold and mansions. It's talking about the values and priorities and ethos and characteristics of the things above and the kingdom of God. So to set your mind on earthly things or, world, or things above or set your hearts on things above is to seek to attain all that is characteristic of God's good kingdom, the love and the joy and the peace and the justice. That's, that's what we're to set our hearts to attain. If there's a young man who sets his heart on becoming a hockey star, there's certain things he does so as to attain it. He gets all the best equipment. He joins the best team. He hires himself a good dentist. He grows his hair a certain way. And he characterizes, this is just kind of a, a hockey guy feel that he learns to be able to emulate, right? Somebody who sets his heart on the things above starts living now in a certain way so as to attain that which he set his heart upon. Living with this kind of justice and kindness and love and mercy that characterizes the things above. But why are we to set our hearts on things above? Is it because that if we don't set our hearts on things above, that God's not going to let us into heaven if we don't live the way he expects. Is this instruction given here because if you really want God to accept you and look upon you with a smile, you need to kind of meet his standard? Is this given here because, hey, we, we need to live a certain way because my, my family expects that of me and and they'll esteem me more and heap praise upon me more if, if I do that. Or my friends or my community. Well, that's not what our passage says. None of those things. Look again at verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. Why should we set our hearts on things above? Because when we've been raised with Christ. Now, in order to, for something to be raised, it has to first die. And this is the profound reality of Christianity. This is, this is, this is what defines Christianity right here, what I'm about to say. As a true believer... Something fundamental within me has died. 
and something new has been raised to life within me. So when the Bible talks about us dying, which it'll talk about a little bit later after this, dying with Christ, and being raised, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just poetic imagery. It is reality. Now, albeit metaphysical reality, but it is reality. You see, the Bible teaches that way, way back when God created the world with all its goodness, everything beautiful and right and whole, peaceful as it should be, that Adam took of the one thing that God told him not to take. He rejected God's rule. And as soon as Adam did that, sin and death were unleashed upon the world. And all that's fallen and broken in this world is as a result. And the most fundamental thing that's fallen and broken is my own heart. That sin and that death is actually at work within me. And until this sinful nature this, this part of me within me that actually is bent and drawn to the things that aren't right and aren't God-honoring, until that can be put to death and something new can be put in its place, there's no hope. But Christianity teaches that Jesus came, lived a perfect life so that he could make the sacrifice that pays the penalty for sin. He could defeat sin. And then as a result of defeating sin on the cross, he was actually able to, raise, he was able to rise from the dead and conquer death. Proving that the power that he has is a true power that can transform our hearts. And for those of us who are part of Maple Avenue Baptist Church, that's why we meet together. Because we have experienced all of us, that life-changing power where something has died and we have been raised to life with Christ. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's fall, and I love fall because of going, being able to go to the apple orchards and pick your apples and your pears. You couldn't walk up to a pear tree and tell that pear tree, start producing apples. It, it couldn't do it. And uh, let's just work with me for a second here. Let's say that pear tree really wanted to start producing apples. It could have someone come and paint all the pears red. It doesn't make it an apple tree. It could even go one step further. It could say, all right, let's pick a bunch of apples and tie their stems to my branches so that there's a bunch of apples hanging on my branches. It doesn't make it an apple tree. We all get that. The only thing that can make that pear tree an apple tree is if it fundamentally changes in its nature so that it is no longer a pear tree but an apple tree. And as an apple tree, it can produce apples on its own because its nature has changed. Now, I say this, I lay this out because we're going to get to a section in Colossians over the next couple of weeks where there's a lot of instructions given. Don't be sexual immoral. 
Don't have filthy speech. Don't be greedy. Don't slander. Don't be angry. And if you hear that, and you think, okay, that's not the fruit I'm producing, so i got to figure out a way to take this fruit that I'm producing and disguise it and change it and do whatever I can so that it looks like I'm producing the fruit that God's telling me to produce, you're going to miss the point entirely. You can pretty up your exterior, your actions, you can talk about them in a certain way. You can play to certain things all you want. But if you're a pear tree, at the end of the day, all you're going to be producing is pears. The only hope for any of us is a fundamental change in our nature where the old dies and something new is raised to life within us. And that transformation only happens when we take our own crown and yield to Christ and say, I'm clinging to Jesus. And with Jesus then, we die to our old selves. And just as Christ rose up, we are raised to walk in newness of life. So that is what we're talking about here. When we talk about the why should I set my heart on things above, it's ultimately because my nature has been changed by Jesus so that I'm going to desire the things that are above naturally as they flow out of me. Well, let's look at verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Now, when the Bible wants to make a point, it repeats itself. It understands we're simple-minded people, so it just flat-out repeats itself. So when the Bible repeats itself, you know it's saying this is important. But when it repeats itself exactly, you really understand it's important. Now, of course, it doesn't repeat itself exactly. Set your heart on things above, set your minds on things above is slightly different. Now, I don't want to get uh, caught up on the heart-mind dichotomy that some philosophers like to argue about. In fact, the, the words heart and mind aren't actually literally there in the Greek. It's the concept that's there. I think it's better to understand this phrase, set your minds. Um, well, the, I was reading one of my favorite commentators, and his name's Douglas Moo, and he said this about that phrase, set your minds. It says, it refers not to a purely mental or intellectual process, but to a more fundamental orientation of the will. A more fundamental orientation of your will. Orient your will to things that are above. So to set your mind is not impulsive. It's deliberate. It's not ignorant. It's informed. It's not fleeting. It's lasting. It's not thoughtless. It's premeditated. The flashing blue screen is supposed to uh, convey some subliminal message. I hope you're picking up on it. <laughs> um, I think of it this way. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are much, much better parents than I am. But for me... When I'm lying asleep in, at night, if 
finally got the kids down, finally got everything done we needed to get done. Karen and I had a chance to debrief and process our day together, read our Bibles, pray, go to sleep. We're finally asleep. We know morning is coming really soon. It's 2 a.m., and one of my children wake up. And I know for you, warm butterflies fill your stomach, and not your stomach, your mind, and you think, oh, a wonderful opportunity to love my child. And you get up, and you go to your child, heart full of love. For me, all I care about at that point is, how can I get back in bed as fast as I can? I want to be asleep. My desires are for sleep. But there's a more fundamental orientation of my will that disposes me to get up sacrificially and go to my son and help him with his need. Help him get back to bed. It's not because of a superficial desire within me. It's because of a deeper orientation of my will. So when we talk about orienting your will towards something, we're talking about something that's deeper than just kind of a, oh, I feel an emotion right now that this is what I want to do. It's actually saying, I'm resolved deep down in type of lifelong, thoughtful commitment to give myself to this, the things that are above. The pianist who wants to become great at piano practices hard each day to become great. And there are times when that pianist, when she, she doesn't feel like practicing, but she has oriented her will towards becoming a great pianist. And so even though she doesn't feel like it in the moment, she gives herself to it because there's something more profound and lasting there. So when the Bible says, set your mind on things above, it's talking about orienting your whole will and giving yourself to the things that are eternal and valuable and the values of that. So set your mind on earthly things, not on earth. Uh, on, uh, on things above, not on earthly things. Why? Again, Paul once again answers the why because he doesn't want us to get off on this. Listen to verses 3 and 4. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, hopefully when I read that, you heard kind of just fleshed out a lot of things I was saying about, talking about before. So this, you've died, you've been raised to life. But there's something more in verses 3 and 4. It talks about your life being hidden with Christ. And that at some time in the future, it will appear. What's going on there? Look back just one, uh, two chapters before in chapter 1 and verse 26. These same two words are used. It talks about, it's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how in the Old Testament this gospel was there but in a hidden way and now that Christ has come it's been revealed or made manifest. So look at, look at verse 26. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed or revealed 
to the saints. So those of us who understand the the Bible as as Christian scripture would all say, hey, when you look at the Old Testament, it's not that the gospel's not there. It's there very clearly, laying out the truths of the gospel. But it's there in a way that even though it's actually there, it's really there, it's hidden. Once Christ comes, it becomes very clear and it's revealed. And Paul uses the same language to talk about our life. So I talked before about how this new life that happens in me, the old dies and the new comes, is a reality. It's not just a metaphor. I really am new. I have a new man. The Bible talks about a new heart. A heart of stone is removed and I'm given a heart of flesh. That's a reality. But I think what's being said here is very important because there's an aspect to which this reality of my new life is still hidden in a certain way. What happens is as we embrace Christ and our desires change and we become new people, we start walking and and we realize the remnants of the old man are still kicking hard. And it's not always easy, even though our desires have changed, it's not always easy to do the right thing. And sometimes this can lead to a lot of struggle. I, uh, I've removed a page from a journal that I wrote in high school, that I kept in high school, and I'm going to read from it to just kind of give, give voice to some of this, uh, this struggle where you want to do the right thing and yet you're battling with this old man. Now, I wrote this in high school, so you'll, you'll probably snicker at some of the um, youthful hyperbole within it. Oh, how great is my sin. Woe is me. For I am condemned by my evil heart. What hope is there for a sinner like myself? I'm destitute without worth. Evil has overrun and corrupted my heart. I try to overcome, but fall on my face instead. Why do I do what I hate? I'm evil through and through. Sin is separation. I am separated. Why can't I love? Why can't I cry? Why doesn't my heart break? I'm wicked. I'm cursed. I lust. I hate. I disrespect. I hurt. I lie. I love me. I erupt. I rage. I curse the name of God. I'm wicked. Where is perfection? Why do I feel to fail to meet my standards? I'm a hypocrite. I turn people away from God. Where can I turn? Hope? Now again, I think there's a bit of overstatement in that, but it captures this struggle that I'm talking about that probably many of us feel. I want to be this. My desires have changed, and yet I still see this old man kicking against the goats. What do I do with that? I think this verse helps us immensely. You see, in this day where we have the new life, where it's true, where it's a reality, and yet it's hidden later to be revealed, the Bible talks about this time in different ways. It talks about how we need to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. It talks about how our sinful desires wage war 
against the Spirit. It talks about how our sinful flesh is actually crucified. I've crucified the flesh. But as you know about crucifixion, the unique thing about crucifixion, it's the one form of capital punishment, or it's the, of all the forms of capital punishment, it's the one that draws out death the longest. So something can be crucified and not be dead. Its death is for sure, it's going to die, but it's still hanging there, <gasps> gasping. So it is with our sinful flesh until Christ comes and our new life is fully revealed. Paul gave voice to this struggle in Romans 7. He said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging against the law of my mind, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So, as we walk in this life, there are continuing struggles with the old sinful flesh. There's a reality that we're new and that we have this new life. But it's not until Christ returns and brings his kingdom in its fullness that that life will be fully revealed. Because that's the reality that I long for, because the life that I have now is hidden and will be revealed on that day, and I long for that day, I live now in light of what I long for. And what I know I will be. So the prince who knows one day he will be king lives today in light of who he will be fully tomorrow. The fiancé who knows she will be this man's wife lives today in light of what she knows she will be tomorrow. And the believer who has received this new heart lives today in light of what he will be fully tomorrow. I heard a sermon in college where it described earth as the fitting room for eternity. And that phrase has locked into my mind, obviously. But that's really what this is talking about. If, if what's going to be revealed when Christ returns and the eternal kingdom that comes with all that is good and right in that is what you really, is where your true life is. It's where it's going to be most fully shown. Then my time here on earth should be spent trying to look how I'm going to be looking eternally there and practice at it and get, get to work on it. So I orient my will towards the things that are above because that's where my life truly is. It's hidden now and be revealed on that day. If Christ has made us alive and if that full life is going to be revealed when he returns, 
Let us seek the things above. Let us value those things that heaven values. Let us practice now for the way we'll be living for eternity. Let's establish a little heaven outpost here on earth. Let us orient our whole wills toward living out the values of heaven. We do live in a fallen world, a hard world. This world can make us weary. It beats at us, it tires us, it wears us out. As we continue on our tour of duty on this earth, we're going to be tempted at times to pursue the things of earth. We'll be tempted to embrace sexual immorality, filthy speech, anger, dishonesty, slander, strife. In those moments of temptation, a friend comes to us and says, since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so it's fitting that we end our service today with the Lord's table in front of us. Because this is something that God has given us as a present demonstration of our future reality. We get to be partakers physically that we can feel on our lips and taste and feel going down our throat. We get to be partakers in Christ. That's where our reality is. It's a little bit like a fr- that friend goes up to the soldier and after giving a little speech I told, he slips him a picture of he and his wife, the soldier and his wife, on their wedding day. As one final reminder, this is where the reality is. So let's let this table function like that little picture slipped to us. This is where our vows are. This is the ultimate reality. And let's live today. Set our hearts and minds today on the reality that awaits us when Christ returns. Let's pray. God, I do ask that you would help us to rightly understand your gospel and what it means to walk in Christ that we wouldn't look at all the moral teachings of chapters 3 and 4 as a list of duties that we have to do to make God happy or to get into heaven or to please our parents or our friends. That we would see what you're teaching us tonight, to this morning. And that we would be people, first and foremost, whose hearts are truly and fundamentally changed. 
And from there, that we would be people who seek the things in keeping with that life that is hidden in Christ. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.